Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I got something I want to talk about to you. Welcome to another edition of Communication Mixdown. Hello, I'm John Langer. Now, if I started this show by talking about the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline Project, you'd probably, and quite rightly, be wondering what I was prattling on about. But if I referred to the Canadian tar sands, you'd no doubt have some flash of recognition. Well, there's a connection, and the media is right there in the middle. And this week on Communication Mixdown, we're going to find out how and why. Bob Hackett is Professor Emeritus at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia. He writes extensively on the media and politics and has a blog called Greening the News. And his most recent book is Journalism and Climate Crisis, Public Engagement, Media Alternative. Bob's also one of the thousands of people who have been campaigning to defend the community the British Columbia coast, and the planet from the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure, in particular the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now, for some local context, you might think about the active grassroots campaign against the Adani mine as a kind of Australian equivalence. I caught up with Bob Hackett for this interview a couple of weeks back during his short visit to Melbourne. Now, let's start at the very start. Most people listening won't know much about the Trans Mountain Pipeline project happening in Canada right now. First up, what's the project, what's it doing, and what's what's involved? Yeah, Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline Expansion Project, or TMX for short, was originally a mega project proposed by the Texas-based multinational corporation Kinder Morgan, which was founded by two former Enron executives. You may recall Enron, which uh, notoriously collapsed uh, due to accounting uh, scandals in the 2008 financial crisis. So Kinder Morgan's had somewhat shady origins in some ways uh, to start with. And uh, in 2013, it proposed the TMX project to triple the capacity of existing pipeline infrastructure that would bring uh, tar sands bitumen from Alberta to uh, the Pacific Coast, 1,100 kilometers. So it's associated with the expansion of the Alberta-Athabasca tar sands, and it's important to realize that bitumen is not regular crude oil. We're talking about uh, a tarry, tar-like substance that usually is used to put on roads, for example. But in order to make it flow, you have to mix it with toxic diluent to make it flow down a pipeline. And the idea is that uh, it would, the publicly stated rationale is it would uh, expand oil sands production for export to Asia, it, that it would give uh, more spin-off benefits of tax revenues and jobs, reduce Canadian dependence on American markets, and increase the per barrel uh, price of Alberta's heavy oil, the so-called, uh, you know, the tar sands. Um, 
that's at least the stated public agenda. The real agendas may be somewhat different, and uh, we find that um, in, in 2018, faced with a lot of opposition because of uh, perceptions of the environmental risks as well as the dubious economic benefits, their economic rationale was very much challenged by independent economists. Uh, the, uh, the Kinder Morgan actually abandoned the project after facing determined opposition mm-hmm. uh, in 2018. And to everyone's surprise, the uh, Trudeau government bought it for $4.5 billion Canadian. And that's that's pretty significant. So it's now a taxpayer-owned and subsidized uh, enterprise. It's still going on. Just in terms of a bit of background to, to the um, Trans Mountain Pipeline and Trudeau, Trudeau made some claims about being climate. He was concerned about the climate. This seems to go very much against that. Well, it does, and it's ironic. On June eighteenth, 2019, the Trudeau government voted to declare a national climate emergency, and the very next day, Trudeau announced that his government had, for a second time, approved the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And overlooking or paying scant heed to the local as well as global environmental risks of this project, much of the route uh, of the pipeline twins the existing route. There's an existing pipeline mm. that's been there for over 50 years uh, along the Fraser River. But when this uh, pipeline, the new proposed pipeline, gets to Metro Vancouver, it's a new route through a densely populated, seismically sensitive area, uh, including the city where I live, Burnaby, which is next door to Vancouver, uh, with attendant risks of um, the extinction of the local resident orca whale population out in the uh, Salish Sea just off the Vancouver coast, um, greatly increased oil tanker traffic, at least sevenfold, mm-hmm. using mm-hmm. enormous um, uh, tankers. Uh, so there's the risk of oil tanker spills, as well as uh, doubling the capacity of uh, the oil tank, so-called uh, tank farm, which is uh, an oil storage depot in Burnaby, uh, and the local fire department has no capacity to respond to that if there's a major uh, fire or incident there, mm-hmm. threatening 30,000 people who live and work at my own university, uh, Simon mm-hmm. Fraser University. Mm-hmm. So it has both local and global um, uh, environmental implications because... Uh, you know, it's associated with the expansion of greenhouse gases, right? Yes, the, the yes. Athabasca tar sands. Now, developments in the fossil fuel industry, you've explained a little bit of, of it to us in Canada. Mm-hmm. On the surface, look a long way, from, look, look like they're a long way from Australia. Why should people in Australia care about these sorts of developments? Yeah, I see a lot of parallels between Canada and Australia in terms of the power of uh, the fossil fuel sector and governments that are keen to appease them and, and, and are, uh, to uh, develop fossil fuels as what they see as an economic development strategy. Uh, so, uh, and, and likewise, a lot of resistance on both grounds, uh, in both countries, on grounds of uh, environmental sustainability and uh, climate stability and so on. So uh, I think there may be a lot that we can learn from each other about the struggles and how we can, uh, you know, uh, both stop these projects, but in the bigger picture, uh, lead a transition to a more sustainable, greener economy. Mm. As you're speaking, and uh, we talked before the the interview, it certainly reminds me a lot of the Adani project here and, and the controversy around that. But the thing that we want to talk about today, more than anything else, I think, is the way that the media has treated mm-hmm. this issue. Right. Now, in terms of the Trans Mountain Pipeline project, a lot of the information that the public's been receiving about it, and this applies to Adani as well. Mm-hmm. The discussion around it has come from mainstream media reporting. 
You've done some research on the media coverage. What did you find? Yeah, I co-authored a study for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, uh, which you can find online at policyalternatives.ca, that looked at uh, media coverage of uh, pipeline controversies in Canada. The time period was basically 2016-2017. And it's important to note that it's not just uh, the media, but also a lot of paid advertising, a lot of uh, um, really a coordinated propaganda campaign by both the fossil fuel um, corporate sector, but also the Alberta government that's very much behind this project. And it's led to a lot of rifts within the Canadian Federation, regional tensions. But um, but we find that promotion of the extractivist uh, economic model of getting stuff out of the ground and exporting it to uh, major centers of the global economy doesn't stop with paid ads or Facebook campaigns. It's embedded in the corporate media's regular reporting. So some of the patterns we found, sampling 300 articles, we found that uh, in news outlets like the Vancouver Sun or Province or Edmonton Journal, um, or the Globe and Mail, which is the closest we have to a national paper in Canada, uh, emphasized themes and voices in favor of pipeline construction and assumptions that go along with an extractivist economy. So typically they emph- emphasize themes like job creation, other economic benefits, uh, pipeline safety, the legitimacy of the approval process, which was highly contested mm. and uh, criticized by any number of legal experts. Uh, pipelines is in the public interest. In fact, Trudeau keeps saying national interest over and over again. That's mm. a, sort of a mantra. He was a former drama teacher, so he's learned his lines. He can follow a script very carefully and very well. Uh, the continued need for fossil fuels and the illegitimacy of opposition. So those are the themes that were continually hammered on in, in the mainstream corporate media. To go back to why we should be interested in this in relation to Australia, the so many of these things mm-hmm. have been circulating around the Adani mine, have been circulating around the coal industry in Australia. These are absolutely very, very similar discursive moves, if you want to call right. it that. Absolutely. One of the things I wanted to unpick a little bit with you is the the opinion articles. Mm-hmm. Interesting, you said in the thing that you wrote, the pipeline advocates construct an ideologically selective version of reality. What are you getting at here? Okay, well, ideological in the sense of being biased or in the sense of framing uh, the issue in a way that uh, uh, is incomplete and limits understanding of it and is biased towards particular interests or values. And they did so in often blatant but also subtle ways. We found, for example, that uh, oil corporations and state agencies like the National Energy Board, which is supposed to regulate on behalf of the public interest but which is arguably an Mm industry-captured regulator – uh, they're rendered invisible as political actors. They're seen simply as uh, responding to market or political pressures, or they're dissolved into general categories like uh, resource development, or they're simply not mentioned at all. It's, it's like they disappear from view. Mm. You know, that, So we lose sight of the fact that there are vested interests that are actively promoting uh, this, this strategy of development. So that's one factor, right? There's other ways in which yes. uh, that ideologically biased view was constructed by, by how um, opponents were portrayed. Right? Yeah, I was going to ask that. Now, how, how were they opponents? Because you're, you've said that there was a lot of opposition, there was a lot of contention. How were they portrayed? Yeah, there's a wide range of opposition. I mean, First Nations, Indigenous groups were taking the lead, really. Uh, and, and that's sort of unique to Canada because in British Columbia in particular, uh, indigenous groups have more legal power than almost anywhere else in the world. 
British Columbia, much of it is unceded territory, not covered by any treaty. Mm-hmm. And courts have ruled in favor of their rights uh, to control or at least to be consulted uh, meaningfully on uh, resource developments in their territories. So First Nations, uh, not, not unanimously, but, but a great many of them along the route, uh, and um, environmental groups and citizens or, who are affected by, you know, just uh, having this massive pipeline go through their mm. neighborhoods, uh, as well as the provincial government of British Columbia, which was elected in 2017, a social democratic government, uh, as well as mayors of some of the cities. So there's a widespread, uh, almost unprecedented opposition. And yet they were labeled in uh, negative ways in the corporate press, the Anti-pipeline mayors of Vancouver and Montreal were called a stumbling block. Uh, They were accused of practicing canny politics and speaking parochially on behalf of narrow interests. Um, And protesters, on the other hand, were portrayed as well-meaning but uh, ignorant and consisting of, quote, a vast coalition of environmental groups that makes demands, which is surely an upside-down, you know, uh, an inversion of actual power relations considering the fossil fuel industry's deep pockets and its army of lobbyists. Mm. Just to take one example, Kinder Morgan, the very company behind uh, the pipeline, the TMX pipeline uh, proposal, had 826 meetings with British Columbian and federal officials over a five-year period leading up to the period of our study. And that was another uh, project done for the, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. So there's no environmental group can match that kind of lobbying power. Look again. I just put this in as a as a kind of um, comment and observation. So much of what you're talking about has been reproduced and is being produced in Australia in relation to the coal industry, the fossil fuel industry, the Adani mine, all of these um, developments, if you want mm-hmm. to call them that, are precisely the kinds of things that are going on here as well. I'm talking with Bob Hackett. He's a media researcher, blogger, and environmental protector. And he's talking about his investigation into the Canadian media coverage of the controversial Trans Mountain Pipeline project. It's a plan to dramatically expand the pumping of oil from the inland province of Alberta to the coast of British Columbia. More after this. It is language that's under pressure. It's the best words in the best order. I write because I want us to join hands together. It would seem wholly unsatisfying to be a human unless there were these moments where we feel something. Spoken Word, your connection to the grassroots story and poetry community, every Thursday at 9am on 3CR. The thing that I wanted to ask next in relation to your research is you weren't just concentrating on the mainstream media and mainstream advertising and so on. There were other media outlets providing what you call a critical counter-narrative. You refer to these outlets broadly as alternative media. Briefly, I wanted to ask you, what does the term alternative media in the Canadian landscape refer to? Yeah, alternative media is a category defined by what it's not, right? What is what is it alternative to? Uh, and it's alternative to the um, so-called mainstream corporate and commercially oriented media or the state media, state-owned media like the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So it's really independent uh, outlets that uh, do not have a primarily commercial purpose. They're so not much like community radio here. 
they're they're pursuing a public interest uh, purpose, doing independent journalism. And so what we looked at particularly were three online sites, which was uh, the TAI, uh, based in Vancouver, the TAI.ca, uh, the nationalobserver.com, and rabble.ca, for which I uh, have the blog. So they are sort of independent, somewhat progressive-oriented, more in favor of social change and social justice and favorably oriented towards social movements in general. And they give important elements of a counter-narrative to the extractivist uh, economic model. Just in terms of that counter-narrative, what Mm. sort of coverage was was given? What did you find when you were exploring Mm. that? They emphasized a, a different set of themes that uh, the power of big oil threatens democracy, in fact, uh, that the approval process through the National Energy Board was fundamentally flawed. You couldn't even present uh, cross, you couldn't cross-examine um, evidence, for example. There were all kinds of flaws with that process. Uh, the pipeline threatens to accelerate climate change by expanding the Athabasca uh, tar sands. Um, it carries other local environmental risks, you know, as I've already mentioned, the tanker spills. The uh, potential for pipeline ruptures. Interestingly, Burnaby, my city, already had a rupture in 2007 when Kinder Morgan demonstrated its incompetence at that time for dealing with with the uh, um, the rupture, and that left memories in in my own mm-hmm. town. And that's helped spur the opposition, in fact. Uh, and it was covered at the time uh, by by the media. I don't want by the corporate media even. They couldn't ignore these things, right? So sure. it's not a totally black and white picture. No, it's a question of uh, emphasis. And the alternative media that we looked at also talked about the threat to uh, a potential Canadian jobs or the export of Canadian jobs because of the lack of refining. Um, I don't know if that happens here in Australia or if that would happen with the coal project, how much, how many permanent jobs are actually created in Australia compared mm. to uh, you know, what's, what uh, happens in the markets to which the material is being exported to. Mm. And also the threat to First Nations rights. Another theme that was emphasized in alternative media. Yes, very much a theme yeah. here as well. And those themes are connected with who they access as sources. Right? That's, there's always that connection between you know, what is said and who is saying it. And we find in alternative media that we have more First Nation spokespeople, more environmental groups, more experts in general, and protesters, or, who many of us prefer the term protectors, um, were allowed to speak for themselves, I think, far more often in alternative than yeah. corporate media. And again, uh, I make the point that this echoes very much the the way things are going here in media terms. Mm -hmm. We had the IMARC blockade. We were talking about it earlier today. Um, You virtually, on the mainstream media, virtually heard nothing from the people in the blockade, but you heard a lot from the people who were defending the fossil fuel, the mining industry, and so on. Um, Very, very different perspectives. But something interesting that I read when I was reading a bit of your of your research, you do make the point that the alternative media, although they make a serious challenge to mainstream reporting of the Trans Mountain Pipeline project and probably other destructive projects, there's still gaps and deficiencies in alternative media coverage. And I just wanted you to mm-hmm. tell us what you're thinking along those lines. Yeah, I think in both alternative and corporate media, at least in Canada, there's a, a big gap that reflects a kind of political problem for how you challenge uh, an extractivist, fossil fuel-oriented economy. And that is uh, the need to challenge the paralyzing stereotype that jobs and environmental protection are mutually exclusive, that it's either one or the other, and that there's a trade-off between them. 
Um, I think that that wasn't really emphasized as much as it could be in alternative media, that there are better, different and better ways uh, to create jobs. That's changed, I must say, since we did the study in 2018 with the emergence of um, the so-called Green New Deal in the United States. Yes. And that's being picked up in Canada as well. The idea of a huge investment in a a greener infrastructure that creates hundreds of thousands of jobs. So that, Mm. I think, has changed in in 2018. But we still find, I I suspect it's still the case, that even alternative media still don't give a lot of voice to fossil fuel workers and unions in that sector. What's going to happen to their jobs during this transition? It sounds, just uh, in, in relation to the Green New Deal, it sounds like Canada may be, as you've described it, a little bit ahead of Australia. The, the idea of sustainable industries creating jobs is still, I don't think, still mm-hmm. on a public agenda in, yeah. in media terms. It's, it's not, it does get reported periodically, but not in any sort of consistent way. Yeah, and before the Green New Deal emerged in the States about a year ago, there was uh, the labor movement itself generated a concept of uh, a just transition from a carbon-based, you know, high-carbon yes. economy to a, a greener economy. Um, and that implies that uh, yeah, it, uh, that uh, workers shouldn't just be stranded, right? And, mm, resor- mm. and resource communities shouldn't just be yes, left uh, yes. to, to, you know, uh, uh, to rot mm. in a, a greener economy. So it implies workers' participation in decision-making. Uh, it implies job retraining uh, into renewable energy and other relevant and growing sectors. Uh, and other ways to minimize economic insecurity of resource, what are currently resource-dependent mm, communities. Mm. So if that's not explained, it, it makes it harder to build coalitions. That's, in my view, the only way to go forward um, is, you know, it can't just be environmentalists, so-called. It's mm. going to be a much broader citizens' movement that includes workers uh, on, a, on a broad scale. And if you muffle labor's voices, that allows fossil capital to shape public debate by constructing a skewed picture of, of workers' interests. Which goes through that skewed debate, gets translated into media terms, and it gets recycled in that way as well. Yeah, and you know, it's a stereotype of uh, hard-hat workers versus environmentalists is, is a very backward and dangerous one, I think, yes. if we're going to move forward to a sustainable economy. Let's finish up, Bob, with some reflections. We have been talking a little bit about alternative media in Canada, the Trans Mountain Pipeline mm-hmm. project is probably, I would describe it as a bit of a case study on how alternative media might be mobilized for the public good. What do you think the alternative media might be looking like in the future in in broad terms? Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see more digital startups. They're sort of flourishing, and I mean, at, at a grassroots level. Unfortunately, they don't have the same sort of uh, investment capital or news-gathering resources or the audience reach or the corporate alliances or access to distribution networks, particularly giant tech platforms like Facebook, which is becoming Mm -hmm. more and more a kind of gatekeeper to the public uh, realm now, public uh, sphere. Uh, But nevertheless, in British Columbia at least, I mentioned the TIE and uh, the National Observer, both are based in Vancouver, and um, they get up to 400,000 unique visits per month, which is pretty sizable for a relatively small-scale independent mm-hmm. uh, journalism operation. Um, they're financed mainly through uh, membership subscriptions or donations. Uh, there's different models of doing that, but I think we're going to see more of that mm-hmm. because uh, the corporate media have a double problem, I think, in terms of fulfilling the democratic functions of holding power accountable as well as uh, facilitating a genuine um, public debate on really key issues like climate crisis and um, economic development. 
so uh, the, the problems that corporate media include cutbacks um, to news gathering resources um, as they are increasingly owned by conglomerates or hedge funds even mm. uh, that just want short-term profits. Uh, and um, a shift to the right. The, the largest newspaper chain in Canada called Post Media has decided that uh, even though it was already rather conservative, it was sort of put together uh, by Conrad Black, the um, if arguably notorious uh, uh, media mogul uh, about 20 years ago. Um, they want to move even further to the right, sort of almost like the Fox News or uh, you know the, the far-right media in the United States. Um, so that leaves a gap in, in public discourse. We do have the Toronto Star and the Star uh, Media, uh, which is somewhat more liberalish and somewhat mm, more mm. Um, sympathetic to environmental issues. Uh, but I, there's still a, a, a big gap that alternative independent media have to fill. That was a pre-recorded interview with Bob Hackett, Canadian academic, media researcher, and environmental protector. His report on the Trans Mountain Pipeline project is entitled Jobs versus the Environment, Mainstream and Alternative Media Coverage of Pipeline Controversies. And if you want to follow up on his blog, it's called Greening the News, and you can find it on Rabble. Dot ca and that's rabble r a double b l e not rebel rabble dot ca and his most recent book is journalism and climate crisis public engagement media alternatives and all the details and the links will be on our website along with a podcast of this show that's all from communication mixdown this week we're here again next monday let's go out with banjo mama Appropriately enough, the song's called Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline Blues. We got the money, got friends in high places, but there's been nothing but bad news. Morgan's got no friends down in Burnaby. We got the Trans Mountain Pipeline News. Well, we thought we could build another pipeline from the tar sands through BC, over mountains and under rivers. We would dig a line to Thought we could make a killing Selling bitumen to the Chinese We got the feds to rig the system To get the go-ahead green light with ease But then a pesky NDP MP in Burnaby Came out swinging and he made big heads and Burnaby's mayor said he'd use his own body to block the bulldozers and the pipelines. And we knew we'd have to deal with First Nations, but oh my, it's really not fair. They put war canoes on the water. It's been nothing but a PR nightmare. We 
got the money, got friends in high places, but there's been nothing but bad news. Kinder Morgan's got no friends down in Burnaby. We got the Trans Mountain Pipeline blues. We got the Trans Mountain Pipeline.